Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure and indeed honor today of inviting to the podcast Dr. Asko Parpola, who's Professor Emeritus of Indology and South Asian Studies at the University of Helsinki. Asko, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, uh, for those of us who are in South Asian Studies or or Indology, uh, he'll be a name um, known to us because he's been producing scholarship in the area for some time. Uh, before we talk uh, about the particular contributions, Asko, would you tell us a bit about the genesis, the backstory? The, the, how did you get involved in this field? Tell us. Well, I came to the university to study classics. That means Latin and Greek, ancient Greek. <clears throat> I had long Latin in school, so... <clears throat> But in at that time, for master's degree, one was required to have three subjects. So I just looked at the university catalog, what else is there offered? <laughs> and then I discovered that there's a subject called Sanskrit and comparative linguistics. <clears throat> well... I I joined the introductory course in Sanskrit and almost immediately found that this is my field. You fell in love. (laughs) Yes. And, um, uh, well, when I got to the PhD phase, my professor gave me as topic... um, continuing the work of one of his predecessors, Dr. Reuter, who had started uh, editing Drahyayana Shrauta Sutra, uh, which belongs to the Samaveda. He had published uh, one-fifth of this text with Hanvin's commentary. 
the rest of the text remained unpublished, but he had completed it. It was accessible to me in the university library. And uh, <clears throat> for my PhD, uh, I translated this published part. That means the first two uh, chapters of the <clears throat> of the Drahya, uh, no, Latyayana Shrauta Sutra, which is almost identical with Drahyayana. Uh, <clears throat> uh, my intention was to compare these two texts, Drahyayana Shrauta Sutra and Latyayana Shrauta Sutra, because uh, they throw interesting light in how many Vedic texts have come into being. I mean, they are based on previously existing work. And, uh, <clears throat> well, my my thesis was a sort of introduction comparing these two texts. Uh, but uh, in addition, I translated into English the first chapters dealing with the Agnistoma, which is the uh, simplest form of Soma sacrifice, giving advice to Sama Vedic priests what they have to do when they participate in such a ritual. So, please go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the uh, Indus Valley culture and script and maybe contextualize a little bit what the what the issue is with the script <laughs> <laughs> well perhaps we could come to this a little bit later because i would sure. like i mean you invited me because of i think the recent publications which are sure, absolutely disseminated so i just wanted to continue that <clears throat> while doing this work on the Latyayana and Rahyayana, I discovered that um, these two Samavedic schools, Kautuma and Ranayaniya school, to which these two texts belong, they have most texts in common. I mean, only, only on the Shrauta Sutra level and Griha Sutra level, they are separate texts. But uh, it seemed to me that uh, the text that they had in common actually marked their uh, school attachment through the uh, terms uh, used for chapters and the way they divide the texts. And I wanted to check whether this actually uh, uh, was true of the manuscripts also, not because we cannot be sure that the editors have not messed with the terms, <laughs> colophones and so on. So I was going through manuscript catalogues, especially such where, where uh, which give quotations from the manuscripts. And 
in the catalogue of the Tanjore Maharajas, Serfoji's uh, manuscript library, I discovered one text which uh, had been uh, uh, said to be Mashakas Kalpa Sutra, a published text of Kautuma Samaveda. But I discovered that it cannot be this text because the quotation gave Jaiminiya uh, names of rituals in the order in which they are in, in Jaiminiya uh, Brahmana. Jaiminiya is the other main uh, school of Samaveda. We have Kauthuma Samaveda with Ranayaniya sub-school and Jaiminiya. Now from Jaiminiya Samaveda, very few texts were known. One was this Jaimini Srauta Sutra, but it is a very short text, only uh, of the same length as that part which I had translated. So I ordered a microfilm of this manuscript, but uh, the library was unable to microfilm manuscripts, uh, so I got a, eventually a Devanagari transcript. Uh, I did myself photograph it several times later on, but indeed it it was uh, it could be seen that this is a previously unknown Vedic text. Uh, <clears throat> and this was in 1966, a long time ago. And by a co coincidence, uh, a commentary on this text appeared in the same year, but without the actual sutra. <laughs> the commentator only uh, quoted the first two and two last syllables of the sutras that he was commenting. This was published by Prem Nidhi Shastri in, in Delhi with the title uh, Bhavatratas Jaimini Shrauta Sutra Vritti. Now, the first part was really Jaimini Shrauta Sutra, the published text, but the major part of this commentary was a commentary on the text that I had just discovered. But that uh, commentary published in Delhi was based on one single manuscript, and uh, the text was not correct. So almost, almost on every line <laughs> you had mistakes, and it was difficult to understand without the basic text. So I decided that more manuscripts are needed of both the text and commentary, and this was my task, to find them in India. Not an easy task. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually, but uh, <clears throat> on my very first trip to, Indi uh, to, to India, yes, 
Pakistan and India in 1971, I started this um, search for manuscripts. And it has been continued ever since, every now and then, together with my former student, Professor Masato Fuji from Kyoto. Uh, we have made regular expeditions and and really combed uh, South India, especially Kerala and Tamil Nadu. Private scholars, private Jaiminiya scholars, uh, asking for their relatives, I mean, addresses of their relatives, and also all the manuscript libraries over there, and also in North India and elsewhere. So, uh, to come to the result of all this, uh, 14 manuscripts of the commentary were traced. Actually, they they could be reduced by uh, to, to four originals because the rest are copies from these, copies or copies, copies. And of the basic texts, no new manuscripts. So those that I had discovered were quite unique. Fascinating. Mm. But uh, <clears throat> getting new manuscripts was not the only hurdle in publishing these texts because uh, they are dealing with the samans of the Jaimini Asaka, Jaimini school. And these have not been published at that, uh, had not been published at that time, only afterwards. So uh, uh, we, we could know, I mean, I could get even manuscripts of these earlier Samavedic texts, unpublished texts, so that I could start uh, preparing the, the commentary. But Sorry, the edition of these texts and their commentaries. Fascinating. Now, the listener might be aware from the podcast notes that uh, this extensive work, um, this work on uh, editions of the uh, the the, the uh, Jaminiya Samaveda Sutras are available. They're now available. They've been digitized and they're available through the links in the podcast notes. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that process, or what, what prompted you to to create this this amazing resource for us? Well, that is a, actually a preliminary edition because uh, I think I have fairly well established the text. I mean, it's in in very good Sanskrit, and uh, I could understand uh, <laughs> the commentary for almost almost everything i mean there there just a few places were left you know uncertain but i wanted to you know publish a preliminary edition because i'm getting old i'm i'm having a serious uh, illness so i wanted at least a preliminary 
edition be available for scholars. Uh, I want to complete that <coughs> edition later on because I have also several other projects to complete. Uh, you mentioned the Indus Valley thing. I mean, this was also, this is a long time project. Um, Tell us about it. Well, uh, for my Greek studies at the university, we could <laughs> study some special uh, book. Uh, and I had chosen uh, the decipherment of Linear B, uh, which was a <clears throat> sensation in the early 1950s, just about 10 years before I started my university studies. And there was a comparable problem in India, the Indus Valley script, which had has not been deciphered. So together with my brother, Simo Parpola, who is an astrologist, he was also a student at that, at that time. Uh, we thought that we could, we might be able to do something uh, also by using computers, uh, something that had become available at that time. We also had a, a good childhood friend who was working for the IBM and who was willing to do the computer programming for us. So we transcribed the Indus texts into numbers and feeded them to the computer, to which then gave us um, <clears throat> lists, I mean, uh, which could be used in analyzing the structure of the inscriptions. And we also uh, contemplated how, uh, by which methods uh, the, this script could be uh, deciphered. <clears throat> Uh, in 1969, I got my first job in Copenhagen, and uh, there, besides other other work, I uh, published the first uh, preliminary uh, results of our uh, <clears throat> work in the name of the whole team. Uh, there were some important breakthroughs, uh, which I think will hold good. But uh, unfortunately, in the enthusiasm, I also uh, <clears throat> published some very unripe ideas and with too sure tone. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, those 
first announcements met very heavy criticism, which <clears throat> was very useful, but uh, <clears throat> not so encouraging. But fortunately, there were also some experts, like John Chadwick, who helped Michael Ventris in the decipherment of Linear B, who were positive. So I continued this work. I mean, getting rid of the defects of the first announcement and going further with the research. And in 1994, I published uh, a book deciphering the Indus script in which I made proposed uh, readings for about 20 Hindu signs. So not for the entire script, which I think is impossible at this time uh, with the materials that are available to us. We must remember that the cuneiform script could be uh, really deciphered almost entirely by means of dictionaries prepared by the ancients. So <clears throat> we don't have even uh, any sort of translation into, into a known language or known script of these Indus texts. And Actually, even if such a translation uh, would become available, it would only apply to the limited amount of text that would be included in that uh, uh, <clears throat> translation. But for any decipherment, it is important to get hold of all material, all available material, and in such a good shape as, I mean, in the best possible shape available. So I started also uh, a photographic corpus of Indus seals and inscriptions. Uh, the Congress of Orientalists in 1973 gave its support to this project and uh, I could get some nominal UNESCO funding, just a few thousand dollars for the project to be completed in collaboration with Pakistan and India. Uh, uh, so far, four big volumes have come out, and I'm working on the last volume. Mm, exciting. Well, certainly when that volume emerges, we'll have to have you back to cover cover it and talk a little bit more in depth about the project. So uh, you mentioned that um, you have a number of projects on the go. Um, certainly you're still looking at the sutras, and apparently you're still actively working on the Indus Valley script. 
Um, yes. is, there anything, is there anything else? That's, not that this isn't sufficient. This, this would be more than enough for, for we mortals. But is there anything else that you're looking at? Well, I have a third, a third. Uh, I have had a third project, trying to uh, find out uh, the archaeological background of the Indo-Aryans coming to India. Coming, the coming of the Aryans. Yes, correct. <clears throat> uh, so. I have, I started, uh, I mean, be, I became interested in archaeology because of the Indus Valley. Naturally, I, I have been interested not only in the script, but also the context, that means the Indus civilization in general and its background and aftermath in, in South Asia. But there's also the question, when and from where the Aryans came to India? I mean, this is a very hot issue, of course, politically, even today. <clears throat> but uh, uh, some, I, may, I have been making proposals, you know, from time to time and learning also about the archaeology of the of central asia and russia and uh, eastern europe and actually this has been a, i mean a topic which has interested also indo-europeanists uh, jim mallory wrote a very pioneering book in search of the Indo-Europeans in 1989. At that time, there was a uh, question, was the uh, Indo-European motherland in Anatolia or was it in the East European steppes? Mallory developed a method. Uh, he was taking the each Indo-European language and following it to its roots. I mean, how far can you go back and where does it get you? I mean, which area? And uh, <clears throat> what, what archaeological cultures are involved? And then, could all these uh, midway cultures be derived from a single archaeological culture? So, this book, actually, his proposals have been proved right by the great... Uh, uh, great uh, <clears throat> development of uh, genetic research. Uh, about nine, 2015 and onwards, we have publications based on DNA taken from ancient 
bodies, where we know the archaeological context. And it has been shown that people from the steppes north of the Black Sea have spread both to uh, Asia, to Siberia, uh, and to Europe from this area, uh, changing the population very drastically, especially in parts of Europe. So the spread of Indo-European from, from the north of Black Sea has become a reality. Now, as regards to the uh, Aryan branch, uh, an important discovery was made in in uh, southern Siberia, close to the Ural Mountains, in 1970s. So-called Sintashta culture was discovered with horse-drawn chariots buried together with the people. Now, we know that uh, the Rigvedic Aryans are referring to horse-drawn chariots all the time. Such uh, chariots are not found in the Indus civilization, not even horse has been found. There are claims of horse horse bones, but these are very probably from uh, the wild asses, uh, which are native uh, to the salt ranges of, of Gujarat and, 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 and Pakistan. So uh, actually, uh, these the chariots are the are chronologically the first anywhere in the world uh, according to the, our present knowledge uh, and both the indo-aryan and iranian uh, languages have terms suiting this so we can reconstruct the terms for chariots for the proto Aryan language. So apparently the Sintasta culture is the from where the Indo-Aryans came. Of course, not directly, but we can follow in archaeology the progress. They came to South Asia in the around the middle of the second millennium BC. Fascinating. So before we close today, let me just we'll pan out to a, a broad question. Clearly, you have a number of aims, a number of interests, and clearly you've been working um, in Indology for, for some decades. What, um, looking back, what are some of the, what do you notice about the field, about trends in scholarship, or perhaps, um, perhaps what is your hope? You know, what can you sort of share from your bird's eye perspective about um, avenues perhaps you hope that would be taken up or perhaps trends you've noticed in Indology over the decades? Well, uh, 
<clears throat> I mentioned that I discovered two unknown texts, previously unknown texts, in in one library in India. Now it is supposed that uh, there exist some, at least some ten million manuscripts, and and uh, it may be possible to make similar discoveries of totally unknown Sanskrit texts, also texts in other Indian languages. Uh, I'm just reminding that one of the most important Sanskrit texts, I mean, from many angles, is the Arthashastra of Kautilya, which was unknown before uh, about 1905, when the first manuscript, the only manuscript of this text, became known. So there may be, may lie still, you know, similar discoveries in the Diamond, libraries. Diamonds in the rough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I think going through the manuscripts and it's, uh, I mean, many of them are, are accessible in well-described manuscripts, but no, not all manuscripts have been well-described. Only maybe only title has been given, and maybe that title is wrong. I mean, it depends on the cataloger. So there's a lot of work in that field, which may lead to in interesting discoveries. So this is one, one thing. While, well, I must say that uh, I enjoyed the best time of my life in Kerala. Uh, not only studying Samaveda with the ancient, uh, with the with the old uh, masters. I mean, the last generation who had had the traditional training. They are now away. Uh, but I also discovered that the Keralan culture is so rich in folklore traditions. I mean, here in the West, we know Katakali, Kudiatam, but not Mateyam. I mean, these are names that Indologists and others know from the Keralan folklore background. Of course, not only folklore, but also Sanskrit literature and so on. But um, there is a catalogue of Keralan folklore and it lists more than a hundred folk arts of these, of these, uh, the, what I mentioned are just three. So it's an exciting field. I, I actually took, uh, <laughs> I, I discovered one one uh, uh, statue which uh, had actually been uh, identified as Yama in the Trichur Museum, but which actually depicted uh, the unknown 
cult or uh, a god of of sorcery in Kerala, Kutichatan. Very little was known about this god in the in the handbooks that I on iconography or otherwise. So I took one month off and just chased Kutichatan cult for one month very, very intensively. And actually, I have a big book. I had a good photographer with me. And publishing this book is one of the tasks that I still have ahead of me. But I did publish a, uh, a very condensed summary uh, in 1998, I think, uh, it was called, I mean, in a book called Aryan and Non-Aryan in India. <clears throat> Fascinating. Well, certainly whenever you uh, publish a book, uh, I know a guy who runs a podcast uh, <laughs> who would happily have you back on to share the fruits of your labor with the broader um, community and interested public um, it's it's great that you, after all these decades, you haven't lost your uh, passion. Passion, I think, we're, we're passionate about these things. Why else? Why else would anybody in the right mind study these things <laughs> other yeah. than just just sheer interest? <laughs> but yeah. it's it, but also it's it's um, so refreshing that you haven't lost uh, your sense of discovery and wonder at the newness mm. of it. No, not not the passion for the known paths or the or, or or the great amount that we know about and 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 need to clarify about in India, but 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 seemingly on the on the cusp of uh, of the unknown, the sort of entrepreneurial consciousness where you know what's what's in these manuscripts, you know how do we better decipher in this valley script if we ever can, you know how you know you seem to have this consciousness of exploration that's very much alive. It's very refreshing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. For those listening, we have, of course, been speaking with Dr. Asko Prapola, who is Professor Emeritus of Indology and South Asian Studies at the University of Helsinki. Um, uh, keep well until next time. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating what might be out there to discover in a pile of manuscripts or in material culture. Take care. <laughs>